Hello, and welcome to this week's The Proteomics Show. This is a special limited series of The Proteomics Show sponsored by US Hupo called The Road to Chicago. Hi, I'm Ben Osborne, and I'm here with a guy who isn't allowed to be around any other people, Dr. Benjamin Lee. And this week's uh, episode featured um, the Dr. Jenny Van Eyck. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, we all know so much about her and all the things she's doing, um, pushing translational uh, proteomics, but I don't think we knew about her path, you know, from small town Canada, some inspiration by Jacques, Jacques Cousteau and even some paintings. So um, definitely listen and enjoy. All right. Hello and welcome, Jenny, to the Radical Beyonds podcast. Um, first off, thank you for joining us today. My welcome. And, and, and <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. And, and as you know, we're doing this, uh, you know, uh, for the upcoming U.S. HUPO conference. And so to get us started, you don't have to talk about what you're going to be saying there, but kind of in general, can you describe what you do? And I know it's a lot, so I don't really know how to approach that. But yeah, what, what exactly do you do? Yeah. So I guess um, if you want me to step back and give a high level view of what I'm fortunate enough to do at Cedar sinai is um, I get to do my own academic lab and do the research that I love to do, but also help a huge number of individuals um, on really that cutting face of translation. So we do that through having uh, overseeing something called the Advanced Clinical Biosystems Research Institute. Yeah, a big mouthful, um, but it's really a collection of PIs and scientists who work either through a core or within their own academic lab collectively. We're really a consortium. Uh, we share our mass specs, we share our bioinformatics team uh, along with an academic core. And then we also have the Precision Biomarker Labs, which is a commercial, kind of an outward commercial facing entity that's really going to help translate and we hope get uh, biomarkers into the clinic. Um, and it has three labs, a uh, discovery lab, translation lab, and soon to be open, clinical CLIA lab, that, which is part of CEDARS, but is its own independent lab. So really it's these different components that go together. And I know it sounds a little complicated, but the essence is that we think proteomics is tough to do. We think proteomics is essential for medicine. And so the way the business plan is to share resources, share expertise so that we can do our own research, but also really translate that and help a lot of other people um, move what we think needs to happen, which is proteomics has to get to the clinic, right? We need it. So, so, that, so it's just a different kind of business model than most academic centers. Um, but it's essentially, that's what we are, kind of this new hybrid. So does it work smoothly? Like they have the yeah. share resource. Yeah so, that, does. yeah, so I think you have to have the right people, right? And I think you have to have enough trust amongst each other um, to do that. And when you have that, then it works phenomenally well. Of course, it's never perfect. <laughs> Nothing is, but I think it does really well. So the resources, it does it both with respect to resources, the number of instrumentation, making sure that the QC is the same, allowing, you know, the commercial interface to deal with the commercial interface, which protects in some way the academic labs. It allows us to spend extra money on innovation. So Instead of having redundancy, we maximize the use of the instruments. And then if we need a new one, we can collectively decide what that is based on our innovation team that's working away. So I think it's a really efficient way of getting resources into play. 
um, while allowing you to drive forward into areas that collectively we all want to do. But it does take trust. It takes a lot of respect and um, understanding what different groups do. Now, that's not for everybody, right? Um, but it, for the what individuals who have ended up here at Cedars, I think it works really well. Let's us support a lot of really talented scientists that are not necessarily would be available to a normal academic lab, right? Mm -hmm. I think we're very lucky. So it's kind of a consortium. Yeah. It is a consortium. Uh, is it all cardiac? Is it? No. <laughs> well, there's a lot yeah. of cardiac, of course, because it started yeah. there, but it's not. Our mandate's actually right across um, all medicine. So, you know, we work across the board. I know a lot about neuro and we work, do a lot in cancer. We do a lot in IBD. Um, we go wherever uh, it, it enters. And the way it kind of on the practical side works is that um, on the academic side is if, unless you have a grant with one of the people in the consortium, then everything goes to the core. It can be assigned to that consortium member, but until you actually have a grant, everything goes into the core. And that allows us to really know what's going on in the instruments. And I can book time on the instrument as an academic lab and pay really quite a low price, just really covers the maintenance contract. And I can run it with our own people. Otherwise, everything's going to the core, um, which does kind of all what most cores does. But if there's something special that one of the, you know, the scientists at Cedars wants, then it goes to the specialty lab. So if you want all the antibodies, it goes to Justina's lab, even though it's going to enter the, the core until you have a grant with Justina. Or if you want to do a natural amino acid cross-linking, it would go to Chris Murray because he's the expert there, but even though it would be entered. So we know all the samples coming in to the pipe, like into all the mass specs and the bioinformatics team has created pretty much automation behind the scenes for everything to be handled the same way. But then you can also cost out some of the time for the bioinformatics people if you really want them to dig into, you know, your, your, your protein, your disease. Um, so we kind of, that's how it works. It's kind yeah. of think of it almost like a huge CRO, but we've done it for academics and we still get to support and do our own academic research, which is why we're here, right? So I do love the heart, but I do work in lots of other areas. Got it. Yeah. Um, how, how do you get to that, that level? It's like, it sounds like there's a, a critical mass of expertise there that, that, because it's, it's hard to find people in proteomics. It's hard to find people in proteomics in, in, in kind of the same geographic area sometimes. Yeah. But. So, um, I think I've, you know, I, I'm older, <laughs> so I've been around for a while. So I've been tracking people. So some of them, of course, came through my lab as postdocs, right? And then, you know, they, they, they merged and could have gone pretty much anywhere, but they also believe in this kind of new way of thinking about how to do proteomics and how to make, you know, a proteomic system work in an academic situation. I mean, I mean, proteomics is so many technologies and so many expertise and so much is required to answer a question. So I think for me, putting the question first, we then had to figure out how do you do that without going crazy? And how do you support young PIs who shouldn't necessarily be running cores, should be allowed to build their own research, but yet we need to support them. So kind of putting all those things together is where ACBR, that's its short form, uh, came into being. And there was another component to that. And, um, and that was how do you work with industry, right? So I am a believer that you need to work with industry to help produce um, instruments and software and whatever um, that's going to really help our, our 
our um, field. And once it's in there, if you can then spread it across. So if you worked really hard, as you did, for example, getting some of the single cell technologies up, well, it's really good if you can then use it for lots of other fields, right? Not just you know, neuro or not just heart. So we wanted to be able to, so ACVR also allowed us to work more closely with um, companies in that kind of format that, and they like it because once they get it working in heart, they can now translate it to neuro, or if we get it working in neuro, you can translate it to IBD, um, depending on the cohorts and the, the PIs, so the clinician scientists that we work with. And I can see where, where that where, where that would be a huge advantage because a lot of times, at least here, you know, sometimes they start a collaboration agreement with with a company, and it all seems like it makes sense, and it never ever gets through paperwork. And it, is is it a little better because you have that 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 window in? Is well, it easier to expedite and set up those agreements? Yeah, but I also think it's Cedars. So I think Cedars is not a, a typical university. We do have a PhD program. Obviously, we do a lot of residency. We're not a medical school. And we're not a typical university. We are a hospital system, not just even a hospital, many hospitals, many different ways the medical system works. And because of that, it takes research very seriously, but it does in the place where it's translation. It really is where the rubber meets the road. This is where if you have a biomarker and you want to get it to clinic, this is probably one of the places you could do it. Um, if you really wanted to be running high throughput drug screens using proteomics or single cell, probably, but it's not good for other parts of academic science. This is not you know, where you might want to work on Dysophila. That would be a hard sell here. Um, but because, so the, so the PIs who are here, the PhDs and the chemists and the bioinformatics people really believe in this giving back to medicine and changing medicine. And that's what drives it and why it works here. The, you know, if we deviated from that, I don't think it would work as well. But I think this model could work well at Hopkins. I do think it could work well in the government. I do think it's a way when you think about proteomics and how you run a business model to make it efficient. I think it has a lot that could be gained as a model system and then you adapt it. So I, um, you know, I think having just a few people in a university situation um, trying to on their own do proteomics, I think it's hard to get that to reach out to everybody because everyone comes in here with a very specific question they want. And I, you know, how can one lab address that? I mean, if it's, it happens to be in your exact area of technology, sure, but that's not how proteomics works, right? Proteomics is after the question from for most of us, not everyone, of course. Um, and so, Doing that, I think, is a way to share the burden and allow you to be at the cutting edge. Um, so, but, that, you know, who knows, right? It's an experiment. <laughs> I mean, I think it's an incredible model experiment. We'll see. Um, but I do think it allows us to be efficient. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, we, we have a medical university here in Charleston. I think you can almost feel that model, but not really. Like, I'm sure if they could, they would. Um, but something that I don't think I've ever heard you say probably because I've missed it but so as you have this like quasi CRO you, you mentioned this like innovation team are these people that just kind of have some of their time directed towards horizon scanning like how yeah. would you describe that team and and how you created yeah, so, it yeah yeah so it kind of came from the concept that you see with clinician scientists so clinician scientists they essentially have to buy out their time from the clinical side to do the research side right so the idea, that was part of the idea. And then part of the idea, of course, is that 
proteomics, you know, there is stuff that's now pretty robust and can just be done, but there's lots of innovation that needs to be done. Um, and so we decided that we should have some money put aside where we could buy time, instrument time and people's time from the staff scientists that allowed us to really direct it. And it also kind of forced us to, as a group, to say, okay, what do we think is the most important thing that we're going to do? Not just was what Jenny wants, but as a group, where do we see proteomics as a science going here at Cedar? Is that would allow us to develop? And it allowed us to develop for several years a single cell. Um, it gave us a, some people's time, some money for resources. Um, it's allowing us to do this I, IPSC-derived organoids on a large scale where we're doing, you know, allows us to work with industry without having to just get them to pay for it. So um, it it is really run by a few individuals and they do it. You can apply within our group. If you have an idea, you can apply for it. Um, it it's still not as probably as robust as I'd like it to be, um, but I think it's working quite well. It worked really well for single cell. It's worked really well where we're doing like, um, we're doing work gen, gen, using genetic, tools and then onto mass spec uh, for PTMs. And it's worked really well for the echo MS system that we have uh, with SciX. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned like with single cells, so you're kind of, you, you have mentioned like a couple years or so, but then do you also, how, how much of that mentality, like this, the, of the Valley of like fail fast, or is it really like, here's some time just kind of plot along. Yeah, no, it's really here's some time. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, yeah, it, and yes. <laughs> so the, the way, so this has evolved over time and I think it's getting even better is that um, we track every sample coming into our mass specs and it's assigned either to, let's say a postdoc because they're doing their own work or to one of our sample prep team and, and then that gets sent to our mass spec team. And then if I need my own people to get on the mass spec, I book time. So that's all tracked. So we track and and because of that we also know how much everything pretty much costs us, um, meaning globally as as a group. So when we say, oh, we think this should be done, okay, we start to book that time out for individuals, and we move people to allow them time. So each of our sample prep guys, uh, uh, scientists, even though, for example, they're doing sample prep, one of them, for example, is in charge with um, new automation. So our new automation on the echo uh, system new programs going up on our i7, they're responsible for that. Another one of them is really involved heavily in trying to get this whole, you know, 96 uh, cells, you know, cells grown on a plate through a whole system, totally hands off with perturbations. They're in charge of that. So they get to have 30 to 50% of the time, depending on who they are, to work on that. And the rest of the time, they're doing the other work. And we keep track of that. Um, Man, it, it's, it's, it really is cool to, to hear about it. I, I really feel like we could take an hour to just learn about all the things in your lab. But we're going to pivot just slightly to kind of your origin story. And, and I, you can start however far back that you want. It can be like you were six <laughs> and you saw a microscope. Uh, but, but start wherever you want. But just basically, yeah, how did you get to where you are? You know, how, how did you become, yeah. have this grand clinical focus? Well, I'll, I'll start by saying I think uh, my journey is a journey, you know, maybe not identical to many people, but I think can only happen in, in a few fields in, of work in the world. And I think science is one of them. And I think that what I mean by that is 
I did not grow up in a science family. I didn't, I'm, I'm first generation going to university. Um, grew up in a place, you know, where I lived for the first few years doesn't even exist anymore. It's a ghost town. The high school I went to doesn't exist anymore. So really, you know, there's lots of stories like that where people came from wherever and ended up in science. And I think to me, that is probably the most remarkable thing about a field in science. Science, in theory, doesn't care about your pedigree. It shouldn't. It should only care about your mind and your talent. And, you know, which is many, many different things go into that, not just, you know, how good are you at the bench, but how you look at science, how you think, how you can bring your team together, so many things. But that's what it's relied on. It's really about you. And I think I am fiercely independent. Uh, people think I'm really nice and I am really nice, but I am, my backbone is I am fiercely independent, <laughs> maybe too much. Um, I, I do trust my group in my lab. Um, but I believe in our vision and I believe our vision evolves representing who's in our group. And I feel very strong about that, um, uh, that vision and that trust. So I'm fiercely independent. And I think you see that in scientists, right? And it doesn't matter if you're in industry, if you're building mass spectrometers, if you're selling stuff, like that kind of fierce independence, I think is there. And, and I, I appreciate that in science. So as you guessed, I'm, I am not from a family of scientists. I grew up in the northern, more northern parts of uh, um, Ontario in Canada. Um, I went to, my high school was really tiny. I don't even know if there was 300 people into it. I think my grade 13 math uh, in, uh, in math, I think there was three of us in, in, um, in algebra and calculus and pretty much no one went to university. I did. I'm the third of three uh, girls in my family. Um, my dad, and mom felt it was very important that as female children, that we could be independent. So they wanted to make sure we could have a job. And so for them at that time, when I was growing up, that job meant I was just going to be a secretary. So I learned how to sit with a skirt on, how to walk with heels because, and you may be shocked by yeah, that, yeah, but it was actually okay, revolutionary. It was revolutionary because it meant that female children were expected to be independent financially. And where I grew up, that was not the case. You got married and had kids. Mm -hmm. And so um, I always knew I was going to go to university. And again, my parents didn't go to university <laughs> uh, at all. Um, and, and I actually, but I was not, we did not have strong science. We had okay science, you know, at, you know, but uh, I actually figured out I was going to be an oceanographer. And the reason I, I knew that was that I'd seen Jacques Cousteau on the TV. And that was the only science I was really provided with. Of course, I'm not an oceanographer, never should have been an oceanographer, but it was science. And when I went to university, I thought you went and be, went to do chemistry, biology, math, physics. I didn't know you could be an, an MD. I didn't know you could be all those other jobs that's just didn't exist in my world. And so um, I ended up in chemistry, soon learned that I should do a split major in biology and chemistry. Um, and then was fortunate in my first job as a laboratory wet lab scientist, the University of Alberta with, with Bob Hodges, he's a peptide chemist. I was a technician for five years. Then finally went back to do first my, wanted my master's, but ultimately did my PhD. Um, and it was really through that journey and the scientists and in his lab and his view of how people should be in a, an academic lab, which was you do 
you grow to as big as you can be. He didn't care if you had a bachelor's and you were publishing papers. He didn't care. You just could grow to be as big as you can. And I still believe that you should grow in our labs to be as big as you want to be and can be and reach for the stars and no limitations on, on what you can achieve. So, and, and he gave me that, that ability to understand that. Um, he was also the first person to start a startup company as an academic in Canada or one of the first in biochemistry. Maybe not the first, but certainly was the first. So I also started the company as an assistant professor. Um, so, you know, you, you grow and, and see things. Uh, and because I wasn't in a traditional background, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do things, right? I just did it. <laughs> I had kids. <laughs> I did unconventional postdocs. Um, and ended up, um, you know, creating really a, a great, uh, really great, great things I was able to do, meaning having great people in our lab and being able to develop to something that you never would have predicted, right? Never would have predicted. And if you had met me in high school, you would not have predicted this. If you'd met me in university, you would not have predicted this. But always a love of science, right? And love of understanding and discovering something new. You know, it's, it's funny you say that because, you know, we've had quite a few people on and everyone has mostly this very circuitous, weird way that they've gotten where they are. And I always, I thought it was because it was proteomics and it was emerging. It's a pretty new field and it's, you know, multidisciplinary. But I think what you're saying makes a lot more sense is like, what do you, like it, science doesn't care about your pedigree, right? Like that's, yeah. maybe that's just what it is. I, I had, I yeah. really had not thought about that until you just said it. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's an advantage if you're, you, you are growing up in a family of physicians, scientists, or PhDs, you get to see that discovery early on and, you know, it's probably in your blood. But I think what's so priceless about it is that you don't have to have that. You can still make it on your own um, because it's really about so many things. Um, and I feel very... Um, yeah, very grateful <laughs> to science that it allows us to do that um, and to discover things. And then to give, for me, I give back to society through the work that we do. And I feel a great debt to society. And so I try to help a lot of people um, try to try to make proteomics count, make science count. I, I think it's completely wild to me that here you are talking about like your parents are, you know, how you're supposed to be sitting as a receptionist. And yet now you are arguably the most influential person, at least in my world of this idea of clinical, you know, translational proteomics. I mean, that, that's an unbelievable trajectory. Like really, I almost don't believe it. Like how, how is that possible? You know, just. So yeah. uh, there's a, there's a look in my family. So, um. There's several jokes in my family about my brain. Um, my kids call me fluffhead because then they say, thank goodness you're good at something, which is science because I'm a bit of a fluffhead at home. Um, but my parents also often say they don't really realize where I came from. I can, if you met them, you would know. You, you would see that determination and persistence and passion for life. You'd see where I got it from, but they don't see it, right? And, you know, I try, it's one reason I try hard to be able to explain what we do um, because they owe, I owe it to my parents to be able to explain what I do. And they always uh, joke. So um, I, I uh, left home a little bit young. And uh, when I turned 30, my mom and dad gave me a birthday card that said, to my problem child, in the best way. Meaning, yeah, I was so fiercely independent. I often didn't ask for their opinion. I would just go do it. 
which always isn't necessarily as a parent now. <laughs> I think it's such a good trait. Um, but, you know, I, but I was always a good kid. I always worked hard, but I didn't ever really ask for people's advice. I just figured out and do it from the time I was very young, supposedly. So, you know, I think parents um, influence you, but I think it's also kind of in your, your genes and your environment and, you know, these drives that you have. And how much? So, so what point on. here did you start moving things toward toward the clinic and and <laughs> and and really you know yeah. heading toward interaction? Yeah, so that's a great question because um, <laughs> I started actually. So I was a technician for Bob for quite a few years. We were at that time we were we were muscle people, so we were working on cardiac. Well, actually, troponin I, not cardiac per se. Um, and that was right when cardiac troponin I was starting as a bio circulating biomarker. That concept actually that you could have a cell specific protein in the blood arising from a dead cell. That was the concept came out of a, a Dr. Cummings lab out of um, the UK, which most people don't realize that that first concept of uh, cell specificity as a marker. So it was coming out it was very controversial. And so, um, I was just starting my PhD at the time and uh, we decided that may, we had this crazy idea that um, for transplant individuals that they, the T and I would degrade so you could figure out if it was degrading, it had been in the circulation for longer and therefore they were not rejecting. If they had new, then you'd know that it was re, uh, that the full length that they were undergoing rejection and new troponin I had come up. Turns out it's wrong, but um, so my idea was to go and collect blood samples from patients who are undergoing a heart transplant at the University of Alberta Hospital. So there I was. Uh, of course, we didn't even understand plasma. Oh, yeah, don't even ask. But um, my job as part of the program was to go down and collect the blood and um, from these transplants. They don't have them that often at that time. But I, you know, often they're very old individuals, and that before transplant, you know, they can't get out of bed because they can't. Um, enough, the heart's not strong enough to push the blood around. So they're really bedridden. And then, you know, they get the heart transplant and then they recover over months and months and months. Well, there was this young individual. He was probably in his 20s, maybe 30, uh, maybe even younger. And um, what remark was so remarkable, I went down to get my blood sample the day before they were going in for a transplant. And of course, they were bedridden. What was so remarkable and still remains obviously to, to me today is that the day after transplant, maybe it was a two days after, but right after he was up and walking to the bathroom. And I thought, wow, the power of medicine that this person who had been bedridden to now being able to walk two days later, if we could understand that recovery of the body so fast, like they were so sick, but then you get it right and they're back. I wanted to understand how you could do that biologically. Um, so that was one of my first, you know, understanding that when we say, you know, we're doing this work in science because we want to make, you know, this disease better. As a PhD and doing my, you know, peptide chemistry, that was still very far away. But when I saw that, I thought, yeah, I want to be there. I want to be doing that. I want to be making sure that we are helping individuals. And because TNI was taken off as a biomarker and we were working on it as biochemists, we actually could help a lot in the development of the correct assays that are still used today. We helped a lot of companies early on to find actually what was the circulating form of cardiac troponin I. And I had some very nice clinical chemists who took this little biochemist under their wing and taught me to think about clinical chemistry and analytics um, and move from really 
more basic research, not that we don't do a lot of that. You know, I love protein-protein interactions and disulfide bonds and, you know, hydrogen bonds and, you know, all that kind of stuff just as much as any other one person. But I also started a long journey to understand clinical chemistry, to understand drug development, to understand cardiology, um, to understand the nuances of actually the application of, of medicine in the clinical world. Um, understand what's known and what's not known so it's been a lifetime of journey since then right yeah it's it's funny you mentioned like going and seeing patients um i i don't get to be around people anymore like like patients people <laughs> they just keep me around. <laughs> <laughs> not allowed to see you anyone. Can move so many places with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah they just locked me in a room no um but but that was my favorite thing when i was at the medical university is like on lunch break you would go and you would see like people, patients eating lunch, you know, sometimes really sick, sometimes not really sick. And, and I, for me, yeah, that's, that's so, it was, it was motivational. Like every moment, every day you have that, whether or not like what I'm doing was helping that, but it's, but it's crazy for you though, to go back to like current day is that, you know, you're running these labs, you're about to have a Clio proteomics lab at Cedars, you know, you can really say, I'm, I'm helping these people. Like right there, this, this number of people, right? I think the other side of that too, that I've learned to appreciate is the clinicians, uh, both the hardcore clinicians I've also learned as well as the clinician um, uh, scientists. But I, uh, just like, as in science, like in more basic science, right? there's a whole array of how different people are. It's true also in medicine, right? And and not just MDs, but there's a whole host of individuals behind supporting that. And, um, you know, I think a lot of them have spent a lot of time with me from surgeons to understanding when nurse practitioners come in. Um, and I've learned that there are some physicians who are just the most phenomenal diagnostics. We have, I work with the Center for Undiagnosed Patients here. And also when I was at Hopkins, there were some individuals who are the most remarkable physicians. And I always thought, you know, some of them are in pediatric. I thought if my child was ever sick, these are the people I would want to be looking at. Because not only do they look after the child, they look after the parents so that they can understand what's going on. And there's just such a talent to doing that. And then there's, you know, all kinds within that people who are able to do both the clinical side and basic research or, or clinical translational research. And I think, oh, how can they do that? <laughs> and, and um, you know, yeah, so you meet the most remarkable individuals throughout your career, right? And so I think it's the patients. I think it's um, the physicians. It's the nurses that I get to work with people who are just committed to well-being of, of humanity, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, um, yeah. That, that's one of the benefits of, you know, where, where I'm at is the, the inspiration. And, and then if you can actually get samples from the clinic to you because of the university gap, right? Doing the consent. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Um, so, so, uh, I hate to pivot from this to be honest, but, but, um, and it's okay if you're always in the lab, um, some people are always in the lab, but if you aren't always in the lab, what, what, what are you doing? Um, yeah, for fun or elsewhere. Yeah, so, um, so I think I'll say several things. One is I, I love, um, I'm a swimmer. So in the summer, 
well, actually spring and fall now that I'm in LA, uh, I swim. I, I, I love water. Water just makes me calm. Um, but I'm also a hiker. So mountains also make me calm. So I'm an outdoor person. I, during COVID, um, my office was my backyard. I had a table out there and I sat through COVID for most of it in my backyard. Um, I, I still sit out there in the winter. I put a blanket on my lap. Um, I'm an outdoor person and I think that comes from my roots. So we hike a lot. Uh, we have a dog and uh, we hike in the mountains a lot. Well, I have grandkids. They're all outdoor people. My kids are outdoor people. So when we visit them, what do we do? We go hiking, walking, skiing, uh, cross-country skiing, you know, playing in the snow. We're outdoor people. I think on the um, intellectual side, I read so much. I have always been a reader. I have a weird kind of brain of how I read. I essentially uh, took a long time to figure it out. I'm an incredibly fast reader and I read based on shape of a word. Um, so I actually only see the first and the last letter and then the shape. Which is one reason I'm a really bad speller. People who know me will know I'll I'll send fast emails and they'll, they'll go. I don't even know what she said because the words <laughs> the iron words. Um, so I because of that I can read and absorb things incredibly fast. It's just how my brain works. So big reader. And then the other one I am I think is um, I used to paint a lot. I'm painting less than I I used to do. Um, and you see that also with a lot of scientists. People think scientists are so analytical, and it's not that we're not. But you also often see the super creative side, right? This ability to see data in space, being able to connect stuff. It, I, I know a lot of scientists who are amazing in arts, right? And I think arts and science are very, very close. Um, and I don't know if you ever saw Beth Anderson, who's Lee Anderson Siskapa's sister. She did this great TED Talk on the interplay between science and um, art. And that kind of innovation. So I think a lot of scientists have these really creative kind of crazy brains. Some of them are very analytical, step by step by step. I certainly know them, but there's a lot that have super creative brains. Mine's definitely the super creative brain. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I love to create things and um, I sometimes have to just paint. I'll get this feeling that there's this thing I have to put down and I'll think about it a long time, kind of like when you're writing a paper or a grant or something like that, and you just have to get it out and I'll have to just go paint or do embroidery or do whatever it is that I need to do to be able to do it. So, I, I can tell you, I, I have a 10, a 7, and a 5-year-old. I My drawing skills are under 7. Like, so <laughs> like, yeah, that, that's my, I mean, I'm great. I love that we're all creative, but like, that's not my language. <laughs> well, if you heard me singing, you would say the same thing too. So. <laughs> oh, now, now you mentioned swimming. Are you talking like open water or lap swimming? Yeah. Unfortunately in LA, I have a, well, not unfortunately, I'm fortunate to have a pool, a swimmable pool in my backyard, so I can do it here. But of course, growing up, it was outdoor mm. lakes, mainly lakes, not so much ocean because Northern Ontario is lakes. Um, so I love swimming in fresh water. That just makes my heart sing. But chlorinated water or salt water uh, is fine too, so. No, it's, it's, that's, yeah. I, I, I love too, like the whole, um, the, the word shape thing. I, I recently kind of had a deep dive into the science of reading and like, you think like, oh, they know how that works. And like, they don't. Um, and I think it was this woman from New Zealand right, like 30 years ago. And that was kind of her 
ideas. Like people saw the first letter and then they kind of went with it. And, but I've never actually met yeah. someone like that or that I know of, right? I mean, who knows? Like, so it's funny because how I remember data is I'm visual. So I will remember um, a graph or something that someone published, may not remember the person's name, may not remember. I will remember that graph and can be able to draw it out exactly and why it impacted how I think. Um, and I, that can go back to the, you know, the very, like the very first structure I saw um, where, you know, it's, you put your eyes together and became three-dimensional. It was in chemistry. Uh, I, I still remember that. I could draw it out for you, exactly what that structure looked like. <laughs> so no. I'm very, very visual. Um, and it took one of, you know, one of the skills it made me learn is how to be able to talk. So I have to actually slow my brain down when I give talks um, so that I can put a whole full sentence together. My brain will go too fast, so I have to stop and slow my brain down so I can communicate. Same thing when I write. I, to write properly, I would have to slow my brain down in order to type. Otherwise, I miss words because my brain's already skipped forward, right? So, you know, this is part of the learning, right? You learn how you work best. Um, do you ever, because we're just going off a tangent here, do you ever, like, while you're talking, like, almost let your mouth keep talking while you're doing something else so my because my, <laughs> so, i i do this it's like, like it's, yeah uh, i kind of go somewhere else yeah so um i actually think i'm a pretty good multitasker my family will say i'm not um but what i am really good and i think why they say that is i can zone into something so when i'm concentrating the world could be exploding and i will not know because i'm so zoned into the thing and i think that was part of me getting an advantage to be able to have such deep concentration. As I get older, that concentration skill becomes a little bit less. Um, but I think that's why I think I can do multitasking because I can zone in and then I can zone out. Um, my parents, my kids just say I'm not looking at them, right? <laughs> I love them to bits. They help me become real, right? Um, and humble. Just as your friends should help you do, right? They help you keep uh, bearing on reality. Absolutely. <laughs> or shut me in a room. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we know you're not allowed to talk to people. You've already said that. really where I am. That's why I'm not at work. <laughs> um, no, that's, 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 I mean, again, I, I love this whole, you know, because again, we've been asking people and, and everyone has something that allows them to kind of um, find the outlet, but also yeah. find the recharge. And so it's, it's been fun to ask yeah. everyone. Um, yeah, I think that's part of it too. I mean, I think what we do is stressful and I think there's, you don't get trained how necessarily how to handle all the different kinds of stress during your training. And I think for me, you know, I obviously push myself really hard. I work long hours and, you know, when grants are due, you know, you, you get fixated or stuff like that. And I think learning part of the journey is learning what you can and cannot do, right? And I always said, my husband said, well, take more time. I'm like, why are you fixating on the grant? Well, for me, if I don't do my best on my grant and I have, and I, let's say I'm not successful and have to let someone go, I have to know for myself, I tried my hardest. That's just who I am. I just can't live with myself otherwise. So that to me is a non-negotiable. So the question is learning what's negotiable and not negotiable for yourself in your career. And then when you're close to a breaking point, you have to know that and just say, nope. I need my time. 
and knowing to allow people in your lab to do that, that they realize that they have to figure it out for themselves, that you can't break and you can't make people get broken, but we're not, you're, we also have responsibilities, right? So understanding that I think is really hard. And I think it's, but they don't teach you. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody teaches you that, uh, or even that you have to do that, right? Yeah, you can't be broken in doing science. Like you're, you're good to nobody. That's that's kind of what I always tell people. I think we had this discussion the other day. Like if if you broke yourself doing it, that's great. But like you're done for the next ever. So yeah, don't don't yeah. do it. And I think yeah, and I think well for me the big one for me was learning I could rely on other people. Um, that for me was one of my big ones that I had to figure out and. and accept and understand that I can't do everything and that's okay. And in fact, that's turned out better because now the, the vision of the lab isn't my vision. It's our collective vision mm-hmm. and collective visions usually are always better than any one person being a dictator. I wouldn't be good at that. <laughs> I'd follow you. I mean, I, I'm just saying like, you can be, you can be this <laughs> cult of proteomics leader any day. I'm there. Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be the guy in the room following the cult of proteomics. This is getting better and better. <laughs> I've, I've already changed what I'm going to uh, say in, in the intro. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh. Uh, okay. Um, next section here was, uh, um, have you been to Chicago? And um. So you don't know, I did one of my, un, um, so I, my, I did two postdocs. They were very unconventional. One of my postdocs I did was in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, at Illinois, the University of Illinois at Chicago, UIC. Um, so I'm, uh, yeah, I love Chicago. I think it's a great city. I, I think the meeting's going to be fantastic. I mean, I, obviously I love USUPO and think it's a great meeting and um want to see it thrive and I think USUPO as an entity without it's more outreach now I think it's just fantastic society and we need it to to do those things I, mean, I uh, think it's grown up to be an amazing scientific society so yeah I'm excited about Chicago I have three things I'm I'm going to be doing there uh, or involved in uh, the first one is a workshop um, it's uh, the same one called precision medicine from biomarkers to FDA um, this year we have one, two, three, four, five talks. And, um, there we have someone from AstraZeneca coming in to talk about how they're using targeted assays for companion diagnostics. Super cool. Young Kim. And then we have Hannah Steen who, uh, kind of got into biomarkers, kind of jumped off the cliff with, uh, I think he did 10,000 samples, um, in a very short time, had to do it. I mean, talk about jumping off a cliff. That's Hanno. Then we have Wei Ju, who I've been working with in, as part of a consortium for NIDDK to make targeted assays for um, proteins of interest in obesity. And they have some really nice targeted assays. And then we have Annie uh, Mardell, who's from um, uh, our Precision Biomarker Lab, who has been working with Andy Hofnegger's uh, Hoff, uh, lab to get a insulin C-peptide clinical lab assay up and soon a, gl- uh, a glucagon out of this is Mike McCoss and Andy's group, but they've translated it over from their lab to both PNL and our lab and it will go into our clinical lab. And the journey from having a nice research grade assay to actually getting one that's ready for clinic and is a journey that everyone should hear about. 
um, because it's a journey that will make it so that when you do discovery, you will be really precise. When you understand what's involved in that next step down the thing, you will <laughs> will change your life. So she, and then we have Natalie Agar and her super cool uh, imaging stuff where they have actually a surgical suite set up for her, her system to be doing mass spectrometry, which is, I mean, I think Natalie's amazing. So I think that that will be the speaker's um, and then John Yates and I are going to be the moderators. So that's always going to be fun. We always batter around uh, and uh, play off each other. So I think that will be fun. Um, hope people come to that. Then I'm doing a parallel session with Andy Tao on precision medicine, which will be, of course, Andy's awesome. It'll be fun. And then um, finally, I have a poster. I'm one of the 23, 26 PIs who put in a poster. My poster got accepted. Yay. And um, I had to, when I made my poster uh, abstract, it's a little different. I actually had to click other because it doesn't fit into any of the things. So my poster is about lessons I've learned in how you move from a small lab to a medium-sized lab and from a medium-sized lab to a big lab. So I don't know. <laughs> it may be really weird. <laughs> It'll be great. Uh, but it will be yeah. kind of, you know, those things that you don't get talked about. So, so it's not, it's about science, but it's not about science. So we'll see. <laughs> I'm excited yes. that PIs are doing posters. I can hardly wait uh, for my, uh, my flash talk, uh, lightning talk. Uh, I get to, I've been trying to think how I can, you know, outdo it, out advertise it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I get to I, no I get to MC it again on for one of the days. Right. I don't think I get to do both, yeah. but at me and uh, Renee, and I am so excited um, because it's going to be so yeah. good. Um, yeah, you know, other societies have tried to do those types of like, but no one does it as well as uh, USU. But last year's was so much fun. Um, <laughs> so much fun and had so much energy. And then you know, everyone poured into the poster sessions and, um, yeah, I, 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 US Super has it right. And they're just a blast. And I think it's a super important message to have it that everyone should be giving posters and oral talks that they're, they're all signs. It, there's not one better than another. And I think, um, they're just different ways of presenting science. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. We'll see how my poster goes. <laughs> I was scared there for a second that you'd, that you'd already made yours because I forgot what my abstract was on. <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> but I've been trying to think, so what am I really going to put in the poster? <laughs> <laughs> how do you do that again? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, no, well, that, that's great, uh, Jenny. I mean, and, and again, like, I think, a lot of what I see, you know, in you and at US Hupo is, you know, bringing that non, or not non, bringing more than science to bear, right? Like talking about business, talking about these actual logistical things that we all face, talking, you know, th this is the real things that, talking about the industry relations. And, and I think that's so critical. In addition to, of course, your huge visions that every time you talk, like, I want to like stand up and like clap. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's really great. That's, um, yeah. And I, I can't tell you how excited I am about the, uh, um, talks about moving things actually into the clinic. I don't know if, uh, if you, if you saw the, the survey that went out and a lot of proteomics people chose 
that clinical science or clinical research was anything that used a, a human sample. It was the majority of responses. Yeah. So it's interesting <laughs> people say that. So it is true. Obviously, human samples are important, but preclinical models are not humans. At least we're trying to make it so it's not human. Um, but there, are, that's where iPSCs work. And that's where, you know, in, in, um, cardiology, pig models are, pigs actually have the best hearts for compared to humans. And, uh, you know, so yeah, so I th to me, it's all more about the question, right? And I think one of the things probably I'm most proud of about my lab is that no matter who you talk to, all of them will have a reason why they're here to do and how what they do will impact medicine. Um, and they know that route, even doesn't matter what they're doing, that they understand that they have a, a role to play in that route. Um, to getting it into helping patients and helping clinicians do their jobs they're supposed to do, right? So That's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. You're great. Life is remarkable. This, this was so much fun, Dave. Uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, you two are so great. <laughs> well, I'm so I'm so happy you're involved in US Hupo. It's just makes it so much better. Yeah, Thank I think you. We're, we're happy to be here until they lock me back in the room. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, no. So Jenny, thank you so much for coming today. It was my pleasure. Obviously a blast. Um, so real fast, some credits. Uh, the views that were expressed are solely ours. We want to do a big thank you to US Hupo for sponsoring this podcast. Um, you haven't heard it, but there's a song, Lead In, Lead Out song by Johannes. Thank you. Um, Kaylee Kirkwood for our artwork. Um, and anyone who's listening, please like and subscribe and thumbs up or whatever it is so that you know when a new one comes out um, because there's a bunch more still to come. So thank you again, Jenny, and we'll see you in Chicago. We'll see you in Chicago for sure. Take care, everyone. Have a great day. Bye.